According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the word of God as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 and 12, and I should get through those verses today, and then move on into verses 13 and following as we see the glories of the church age that are being described. There is a then and now contrast in these verses, and the then and now contrast are dispensational contrasts. When we talk about formerly, what was the estate of the Gentiles before the church age? What was it that Gentiles could anticipate prior to the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit and the uh, beginning of the church age on the day of Pentecost versus now in the church age, the, the position and standing that we have as a positional truth standing in Christ. And so these principles become very vital for us to understand. And I want to hammer it again as hard as I can repeatedly throughout this chapter, the, the more work we do in this chapter, the benefit we will derive from it comes in chapter 3. And so uh, setting the table now will only improve things as, uh, as we work our way through. All right? God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study of the Word of God. Let's humble ourselves before Him in silent prayer, confess any sin that needs to be dealt with, Certainly, you drove in Austin traffic to get here. There could be a sin issue involved. So uh, just quiet your heart and prepare for eternal truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again this morning just so thankful. You are faithful and true. Your word is faithful and true. And as we come together today to study to show ourselves approved, we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time, open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2.11. Uh, in this chapter, we've had one main point of study. Remember, my notes are on the left, not to be confused with the Bible that's on the right. All right, my notes are on the left, the Bible is on the right. Uh, we're dealing with a paragraph here in verses 11 through 22 that I have titled, You Were Separate and Excluded, But Christ. You Were Separate and Excluded, But Christ. That's my title for this paragraph in verses 11 through uh, 22. And as we read in verse 11, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, this is who's being addressed. It's not individuals being addressed. It's a collective address to the Gentile position. All right, Positional truth realities, as we understand them, relate to Gentiles, relate to Israel, and relate to the church. And we, and we don't want to confuse or blend those different spheres of activity. The Jews, the Gentiles, or the church. That's three realms of humanity. If you keep them distinct, you will do much better in your understanding. And so when it says, formerly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were looking at the Gentile estate. What was the Gentile estate like before the church age? And what is the estate now? Now that we have born-again believers that are baptized in a personal union with Jesus Christ, we have a new estate now that we deal with called the church. And so diagramming these things becomes important. I think uh, understanding the timeline becomes important. Understanding in the, in the plan of God where we are in the church is important. Right here, colored purple, called the church. Okay, Before the church was the stewards, you had Israel. Before the, uh, Israel, you had Gentiles or the dispensation of man. And before Adam and Eve, you had the angels. The angels had a stewardship before the stewardship of humanity. And so thinking your way through Scripture, thinking your way through the unfolding uh, program whereby we have different dispensations, we have different stewardships, we have different duties at the different eras becomes, uh, becomes important. And what, this, what we're dealing with here in Ephesians 2 is the contrast between then and now, formerly and now. You see in, in Ephesians 2.11, it's formerly, and then in verse 13, but now, but now in Christ. And so we have the formerly during Israel's stewardship, but now in Christ we have the church age, the day and age in which we live. We, we presently live in the church age. So recognizing these, these distinctions is important. We also have, if I can bring this up as well, within my documents I have a, 
canvas, and in my canvas I have humanity, Old Testament humanity and New Testament humanity. This is how humanity could be diagrammed in the Old Testament or prior to the church age. Make it larger there. So prior to the church, all of humanity was put into a couple of different categories, Jew and Gentile. To be a Jew, you had to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's all it took to be a Jew, to be born into the Jewish race, into the Jewish uh, family on this earth. And anything that wasn't a Jew was a Gentile, including Romans and Babylonians and Greeks and everything, everything but. Everything but a Jew was considered a Gentile. And then when they got saved, they were classified in these lower circles here, believing Gentiles or believing Jews. They did, that's, that's the nature of Old Testament humanity prior to the church. Alright? Then, as we go to New Testament humanity, I should put uh, shortcut buttons on my desktop for these. would make them uh, easier to get to. New Testament humanity looks like this. Again, got to make it larger. What I really should do is just export these as JPEGs, put them on the desktop, and then they're good moving forward. But now here's New Testament humanity. Here's what happens now that we have the body of Christ. That we still have Gentiles, we still have Jews, they're all unbelievers, because when a Jew or a Gentile gets saved now ever since the church age began in Acts chapter 2, they no longer become that, that inner circle with believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Today, in the church age, they become part of the church. It's a whole new circle. It's a whole new classification. It's a whole new positional truth reality. All right, just understand, these diagrams are simply contrasting uh, what, what the Old Testament talks about and what the New Testament talks about. And the new reality in the church is a new creation, a new man, a new existence, a new estate. And so this positional truth that we call the church is absolutely vital. It is neither Jew nor Gentile. It is a new creation in Christ called the church. So... This is the contrast of what we're dealing with in verse 11. Remember that formerly and then but now. And as we deal with the formerly, we're, not, we're dealing with the positional truth of what those Gentiles were like before the church age. And so this is our detail now under point two in the outline. At that kairos, at that opportune time, at that kairos, formerly, you were at that kairos, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope and without God in the world. We have a total of five statements that are made here, and I put in some extra spaces in the Bible, and I put in some bold formatting in the Bible. I'm not rewriting the Bible, but I am formatting a bit, so that we can visually see the, uh, the five items that are here. You were separate, excluded, strangers, hopeless, and godless. That is, without hope and without God in this world. And this is the nature for Gentile humanity prior to the coming of the church age. All right? And I probably should go ahead and just leave this other one open and quit closing it down, because I'll probably refer to it again and again for uh, Old Testament humanity. What a, what a lost estate, okay? Gentile humanity didn't have a Christ. The only promised Christ was the Jewish Messiah. So all of Gentile humanity over here was Christless. They did not have, they were separated from Christ. And they were alienated from the nation of Israel. They had their own nations. They had their own citizenship. They had their own land grants. They had their own territories. And it didn't matter whether they were Egyptians or Babylonians or Philistines or Hittites or, or whatever they were. If they were not Jews, then their national heritage was not the national heritage of Israel. Likewise, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Anybody in this position over here? What covenant did they have? 
Because guess what? The Abrahamic covenant was sent to the Jews. We're studying that next hour in the book of Genesis. The Abrahamic covenant was for the Jews. The Davidic covenant was for the Jews. The new covenant is for the Jews. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay? The Mo- even Mosaic law, which was not a covenant of promise, but still it was a covenant, the giving of the law, was not to the Gentiles. No Gentile nation was ever expected to keep Mosaic law. Only the Jews. Only Israel was expected to keep Mosaic law. And so when we're seeing, I'm going to leave that open, while we're seeing everything listed here in verse 12, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, that is a fivefold description of what it means to be positionally over here in the Gentile positional truth reality of the Old Testament. And it didn't matter if you got saved. Individual Gentiles were getting saved all the time. Think of your favorite Gentile believers of the Old Testament. Believers like Uriah the Hittite, or believers like Ruth the Moabitess. Or think about other believing Gentiles. Job was a believing Gentile. Think about other believing Gentiles in the Old Testament, and you'll find that even though they are believing Gentiles, simply getting saved did not change their estate as Gentiles. And even though, as I said, Uriah the Hittite was a, was a believer in his personal faith of the coming Messiah, he was a born-again believer, but still the Hittites were without Christ, or separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. It, it, did, it did not affect the estate of Gentile humanity. So, this catalog of Gentile disadvantage has a similar catalog of Jewish advantage in Romans 9. So, everything that they didn't have here, and you could probably think your way through and just consider the opposites just fine, you know, everything we see here is, is reversed in Romans chapter 9, and this, these are the advantages that the Jewish people had. It, uh, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Paul says. Israelites, there's the commonwealth of Israel, the political citizenship of the nation of Israel, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants. Remember, the Gentiles are strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants belong to Israel. They belong to the Jews. And the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. The Gentiles were without hope, having no hope and without God in this world. But Israel has all of this. Whose are the fathers, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh. The only Messiah there's ever been is the Jewish Messiah. There are no Gentile messiahs. And so, both Romans 9 and Ephesians 2 are effectively saying the same thing, just from, other, from opposite sides. In Ephesians 2, uh, we're learning what the Gentiles didn't have. In uh, Romans 9, we're learning what Israel had, what the Jewish people were blessed with as a part of their positional truth. So, when it comes to Old Testament spirituality and what it means to be a believer prior to the church age, you know, would you rather be a Gentile believer or a Jewish believer? Okay, you know, the advantages were clearly on the Jewish side of things, that the the Jewish believers had uh, the the national promises and the covenants and all of the blessings there. But thankfully, uh, we don't have to make that choice either or, because we are now the third option. We are now the church and the positional truth reality of the church is uh, is our blessing today. So we've been going through each of these items one by one, separate from Christ In the Greek, choris Christu, no Gentile ethnos had a Messiah. It's only Israel that had a Messiah. And so uh, to be a part of a Gentile estate meant that uh, the only Messiah you could hope for was the Jewish Messiah. Because your Greek Messiah, your Roman Messiah, your Egyptian Messiah, whatever hero you thought you had, national hero you thought you might have, was not the, the Lamb of God coming to take away the sin of the world. That was the Jewish Messiah. Alienated from the polity of Israel. Every Gentile ethnos had their own God-given politeia. And it was not the politeia of Israel. And I think understanding the politeias are useful too, because it keeps us from confusing our, our patriotism with our spirituality. 
All right. And uh, I think a lot of Christians fail in that regard. They think that being a good citizen equals being a good Christian. And that's absolutely wrong. You can be you can don't have to be born again to be a good citizen. Right. To be to be politically uh, uh, patriotic and supportive of your of your nationality and your community and, and so forth. So don't confuse politeia with uh, spirituality. Anyway, we could say some more on that. Every Gentile ethnos had their own God-given politeia. And that's something we'll deal with more, I think, moving forward as well. We're going to have a principle in chapter 3 when we have, Blessed be the God and Father, we have a prayer. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that's going to be a, a vital verse that we look at as we understand how the Father supervises, through the Son, how the Father supervises humanity. All right. Thirdly, strangers to the covenants of promise. Strangers to the covenants of promise. What's this about? Okay. The xenoi is the vocabulary. Xenoi is the Greek word for strangers. If anyone ever calls you xenophobic, it's coming from this word. X-E-N-O-S in the Greek. The X sounds like a Z, Xenos, or Xenoi in the plural, of the diathekon tes epangelias, the covenants of promise. And no Gentile nation was party to any covenant of promise. God, the God of Israel, was the God who entered into these covenants, and uh, they were only with Israel. So the Abrahamic covenant was not with a Gentile nation. The Gentiles would be blessed, through Israel, because part of the Abrahamic covenant is in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but it has to be blessed in Abraham and his seed. That's how the Gentiles are blessed. That will come up in the millennium and that will come up in future studies as well. So all of this is, is uh, just, if, if you're part of our afternoon systematic theology or our afternoon uh, seminary classes, uh, I would encourage you. We're, we just started a new dispensational series last week, and uh, it's going to it's going to just glove t- uh, dovetail with these uh, these lessons here, pretty uh, pretty wonderfully. As far as a birthing and an adoption event, um, we have the uh, the the adoption and the birthing that's mentioned in the Romans parallel, Romans nine four. Uh, these covenants that make Israel the covenant nation uh, is what. Uh, Gentiles were excluded from. Fourthly, not having a hope. Not having a hope. In the Greek it says, Elpida me akantis. You have the present participle of echo, to have or to hold, and continuous action, not continuously having. It's negated with the may, and so not having hope. You can also just rephrase that as hopeless. Hopeless Gentile nations, what, what hope do they have? What hope does any Gentile nation have of a future eternal destiny? None. The only future eternal destiny that's guaranteed by the Word of God is the future eternal destiny of the nation of Israel. When Jesus Christ returns at second advent and takes his seat on the throne of David, he will reign forever. Israel has a future destiny. America does not have a future destiny. If you want to convince me, we have a potluck today. I'll be glad to sit around with you. We can talk doctrine during the, during the potluck. Uh, feel free to convince me that the United States of America has an eternal destiny. Uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, on what basis are you trying to convince me of that? What scriptures tell of that? What covenant promises guarantee that? And then uh, I'll be very curious to get your reply because I suspect um, you won't have one. Okay, I'm going to suspect, because it doesn't come from the Bible. It doesn't come from any revelation of God's in the Hebrew canon or the Greek canon. And so where are you getting this eternal destiny, this eternal hope for our Gentile nation? Okay, Because I don't have it. None of us have it. That uh, America can be destroyed tomorrow, America can be destroyed today without violating any eternal promise, because there are no eternal promises related to the future of our nation. I would remind us of Daniel chapter 2, which is a text and a prophecy that we've studied many times. I'm going to click there. We're going to turn over and read some things here from Daniel chapter 2. And if you don't... um, 
I can't read the whole chapter this morning. It'd be worthwhile if we, if we did. But for the sake of our time, in Daniel chapter 2, what's happening is King Nebuchadnezzar is having nightmares. He's having these dreams night after night after night, and they're terrifying him. The dream, and, and so he's asking his, his sorcerers and his diviners, his wise men, he's asking all of his magicians if they can interpret the dream for him. He's also insisting that they have to tell him what the dream is first. He's not telling them the dream so that they can concoct an explanation and agree in some kind of a deception. He's actually withholding the information from them so that when they tell him the dream, then he'll have some kind of confidence that, well, they knew what the dream was. They must also be able to tell the interpretation as well. Okay? That's my five-second, my, my two-minute description of Daniel chapter 2. And so they all fail. The wise men fail, the magicians fail, the sorcerers fail. Nobody in his advisors can tell him what the dream was until they get to Daniel. And Daniel says, I'm going to pray about it and I'll tell you the dream. Because the true God is a God who can reveal dreams. He can reveal mysteries. He knows the future and that's what this dream is about. And so picking up here in verse 31, as Daniel is describing to Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what his dream means... We find some very uh, valuable information, and it applies to us. It applies to Gentile nations. It applies to human history in between the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC and the conquering of the world by Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. And that's what we see here. So Daniel tells the king, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. All right. Was that a lucky guess? Did Daniel just guess that Nebuchadnezzar had a statue dream? Okay. Well, maybe kings had dream about statues. Who knows? But it gets more detailed and more specific, and it cannot be a lucky guess. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. All right, now we're getting more specific. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is becoming convinced that this isn't a lucky guess, that Daniel actually knows what the dream was. The head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver. The view is going from top to bottom as he scans down this statue, and he describes it element by element from head to toe. So the head of the statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, so now we're working lower down the statue, from gold to silver to bronze. The head, the chest and arms, the uh, belly and thighs. But then the legs and the feet, or the legs, I'm sorry, the legs are of iron, still working our way down. And then the feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. And what we have here is a timeline of Gentile history. And he's going to interpret this uh, in these upcoming verses. It's feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. In case you were wondering, this is where we are today. We are in the feet stage of this, of this prophecy today. Daniel continues. He says, You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. So what, what would you rather be, the stone or the feet? <laughs> All right. It's important that we understand these things. It seems kind of violent. It seems rough. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. Even though these, these materials were replaced, there's still the ongoing legacy, the ongoing effects, the, the ongoing, I guess legacy is a better word, legacy of all of these Gentile cultures, these Gentile uh, nations, these Gentile cultures, these Gentile, uh, the role that they played in human history. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like the chaff from the summer uh, threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. And praise God for that. Okay? Because uh, it needs to go away. The evil that's being done, particularly in the end times, the evil that's being done with Antichrist and the, and the revived Roman Empire uh, needs to be blown away and gone with the wind so that not a trace of them can be found as, as the new kingdom is established uh, by Jesus Christ for the millennium. 
But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And we can rejoice over that. You think about the impact that Israel has today uh, compared to the impact that it will have in the millennium, and it's like night and day. The, uh, just in terms of proportion and numbers and size and, uh, and so forth. It's still small today. In fact, the, the population ratio of Jews to Gentiles is basically one per 500. All right? It's a tiny little thing. One half of, you know, I forget, like 0.2% of humanity is, uh, is Jewish. But it's going to become a great mountain. It's going to fill the whole earth. The global impact of Israel and the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is going to be so overwhelming and so dominant that uh, this is how we see it described here. So that's the vision. Then the explanation is given as well. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. And you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't stop him anywhere. He doesn't say, oh no, that wasn't it, or no, no, you're wrong. He's just listening. I think he's captivated. I think he's overwhelmed. Like, holy cow, this, this guy knows what he's talking about. This, that was my dream. And, and he's just salivating. So he never stops him, never interrupts. He's waiting now for the, the explanation. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the strength and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar is mighty, but it's not because he deserves it. And it's not because he earned it. It's not because of anything he did. He did a lot. Built hanging gardens and conquered all kinds of places. But it's only because God is using him in his right hand, using him as a tool, using him uh, for his own purposes. Because it's the God of heaven who did this. Yeah, you're the king of kings, all right, but who made you the king of kings? The God of heaven has given you the kingdom and the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, we, we, uh, maybe we lose sight of this, that the dominion mandate that we have as our Adamic heritage, uh, that continues. That continues post-Noah, that continues uh, on and through Old Testament times, New Testament times, and the like. So uh, the sons of men, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. Remember, the dominion mandate is to rule. You are the head of gold. And so now we're starting to identify this statue, working our way down from head to toe. We're starting to identify that statue, and it begins with Babylon. It begins with the the empire that God used in order to vacate the throne of David. Okay? Because the throne of David is an eternal throne, but God chose to vacate it for a time. He took Israel into captivity. He destroyed the temple. He vacated the Davidic throne. It's still vacated to this day. We want to be clear on this. So, uh, you are the head of gold. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. So, you know what? The Babylonian kingdom is not an eternal kingdom. Because after you, there's another one coming up next. These things come in a sequence. Kings rise, kings fall. God's in charge of all of these things. The more you study Daniel, the more you can be relaxed about current events. All right? The more you can be relaxed about geopolitics. And you can just praise God that God has a handle on everything. So after you will arise another kingdom. This is Persia. Sometimes called Medo-Persia because it was a tandem of the Medes and the, per- uh, the Persians. Inferior to you. That's what, because silver is less valuable than gold. And so the imagery of those metals then is consistent with the nature of those kingdoms. So it's inferior to you. And then another, third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the whole earth. Okay, you think about the implements of bronze and how bronze was used for weaponry. Okay, gold wasn't used for weaponry, silver wasn't used for weaponry, but bronze was used extensively for weaponry. And the Greek Empire, that's the third kingdom, that replaced the Persian Empire, that replaced the Babylonian Empire, militaristically conquered, and uh, you know Alexander's domain was, uh, was uh, extreme. All right, so we've gone from Babylon to Persia to Greece. This is a prophetic dream that Nebuchadnezzar is receiving, and it spans the, the, the Gentile history of the Gentile dominion over the Jewish people. How these Gentile nations have dominion over the territory of Jerusalem, 
and have dominion over the, the lives and the, and the well-being of the Jewish people. Okay? And this is significant because I, I can't tell you that the, the events when God allowed, in 586 B.C., when he allowed for his temple to be destroyed, when he went, even before, prior to that, when he took the glory away, but he allowed for the temple to be destroyed, and he allowed for King Zedekiah to be hauled away. There, since that day, there has never been a Davidic king seated on the Davidic throne. There were kings who were eligible. There were men who were eligible. They didn't claim the throne. They didn't attempt to take the throne. Part of why uh, Zerubbabel is such a fascinating character to me was because he came back and he was, he was in Jerusalem. He was the heir of David, but he ruled as a Persian governor. And he ruled in humility as a, as a Persian governor rather than a Davidic king. And he never claimed that throne. And all of his children, all the way down to, even down to, to Joseph, right? The father of our Savior's, you know, the adopted father of our Savior's humanity. He was entitled to it. He was the heir. He never claimed it. Jesus never claimed it. Not in his first advent. Okay? He was entitled to it. But it was not yet the will of the Father to reseat the throne of David with the son of David on that throne. That will happen in his second advent. Alright, so then we get to the fourth kingdom. We get to Rome. There will be a fourth kingdom. As strong as iron. And if you know anything about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, which weapons did better? Okay? The iron weapons did better. The Iron Age conquered the Bronze Age. The iron, militaristically, is an, improve, is an upgrade over bronze weaponry. And so the Roman Empire that defeats the Greek Empire. We see the history of this here. And uh, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And so nothing stands before the might of Rome as, as far as this historical era is concerned. And uh, historically, we understand how that was fulfilled because Pompey, or Pompey, was the one who conquered in the, in the, uh, the Levant, the territories of Israel, the, the uh, capital city of Jerusalem. But then you get to the feet. In that you saw the feet and toes, first mention of toes, in that you saw feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. Now we have something different in the statue and something different in the dream. And it's not a wholesale replacement. Silver replaced gold wholesale. Bronze replaced silver wholesale. Iron replaced bronze wholesale. And that represents an invading kingdom with a complete vanquishing of the preceding kingdom. But now we have a mixture and what happens with this mixture? We don't have a wholesale replacement of iron. We're not looking at a fifth kingdom that, that brings about the fall of the Roman Empire. We're not talking about a fifth kingdom. The clay is not a fifth kingdom. Clay is a cultural intrusion into the fourth kingdom. And then that mixture of clay and iron is what brings about the collapse. It is not a fifth kingdom. You don't get to the fifth kingdom until the stone comes from heaven uh, and smashes everything. So we have feet and we have toes, partly of iron, partly of clay. The toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery. And so we have clay that is baked and hardened and formed and fashioned in different ways at different times. So some of the kingdom will be strong, a part of it will be brittle. I'm giving you here a ten-minute synopsis of what we took weeks and weeks and weeks to teach in Daniel chapter 2. All right, But the point being, something is different with the introduction of clay. And the clay does not create a fifth kingdom that overthrows the iron. No, it represents a foreign element, a cultural element that is being injected into the iron. And you understand, historically, this was the Germanic peoples who were coming into the Latin culture. You end up with the Germans, the barbarians, and coming to join the Romans. And how well did that work? And by the fall of Roman in the 5th in the century, uh, the bulk of the Roman army was actually Germanic. And, and most of the, the Latin culture was decadent. 
by the time you get to the final stages of historical Rome. That's all described here. Daniel gave a prophecy of that, you know, 600 years, uh, even up to 1,000 years before it happened. Okay? If you date Daniel at 600 B.C. in the fall of Rome after 450 A.D., that's a lot of time. And Daniel is right on target with this. All right. As for the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. All right. We have not reached yet the toes. I'm waiting for it. Could happen tomorrow. I'm waiting for it. We're still in the feet. The toes have not yet appeared. The toes, there's ten of them, are like the ten horns of chapter 7. And the, the eschatological Roman revival will have ten horns, a confederation of ten kings, ten nations in eschatological Roman reality. We haven't yet seen that, but preparations are underway to, to bring that about in our, uh, in our generation. All right, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. The seed of men. Of all the seed studies we've ever done, from seed of the woman to seed of Abraham to seed of David, of all the seed studies we've ever done, this one here is remarkable because this one, in dealing with the seed of men, we're actually talking about the descended cultures and, lang- and uh, histories, ethnicities and nations that descend from the, the Latin and Germanic origins uh, that we understand of Western Europe and, and the Western world today. Okay? The seed of men. We're talking about descended through generations. So don't worry about the fact that it's been 1,500 years. It's been 2,000 years. That time has gone by. That Rome is long gone. Yes, Rome is long gone, but Rome is still here in the descended people groups, the seed of men that descend from the Roman and the Germanic clash <clears throat> clash of the 5th century A.D. Again, that's a, I'm going way too fast this morning. This is a topic, this chapter requires hours and hours of work. What I'm really headed for is verse 44. So we're almost there. In the days of those kings... Wait a minute, what kings? Well, they were called toes in uh, verse 42. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Hello? Show me a verse like this that applies to America. You can't do it. Okay, an eternal kingdom, an eternal hope. Only Israel has this. The Babylonians didn't, the Persians didn't, the Greeks didn't, the Romans didn't, the Americans don't. A kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. It will itself endure forever. All right, and praise the Lord for that. It will itself endure forever. Amen. Now, these are precious promises, okay? These are the kingdom promises of the Old Testament. And you can take Daniel and, you can, and add him to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, all the other prophets. The expectation that the Jewish people had for a future kingdom was undeniable. A future eternal kingdom was undeniable. And they knew they were getting close. They had seen the, the rise and fall of Babylon, the rise and fall of Persia, the rise and fall of Greece. They had seen the rise of Rome. And they were under the dominion of Rome when the Messiah was born. And there was such a fervent expectation of the Messiah. They even had a calendar, thanks to Daniel chapter 9. And they could count the 77s. They could count. And all of this anticipation that, uh, that Rome was on the verge of, of being uh, the, the stone coming from heaven and crushing it, they were on the verge of the kingdom. And then John the Baptist arises and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, Hallelujah. All right, And so all of the Jewish expectation is we're getting rid of Rome and our kingdom is, is almost here. This is what they had to look forward to. And so this is the estate. And notice it is a Jewish estate. Everything else over here, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans, all Gentiles. All Gentiles. No eternal future. Only Israel with that eternal future. All right. 
Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And that was the closing arguments there that Daniel makes. And so Nebuchadnezzar's impressed. He falls on his face. He does homage to Daniel, gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. He's going to start to worship Daniel like a god. I expect Daniel said, uh, no. <laughs> okay. And the king answered, Daniel said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this, this mystery. So the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. It's a huge promotion. Okay. Something else we might pray for, too, that God will do this with our country. That God will take believers with doctrine, positive to the word of God, put them in high offices of power and influence so that they can be a benefit to uh, some of the other knuckleheads that are there already. <laughs> All right. All right, so there's Daniel chapter 2. And uh, the description of Gentile nations, as great as they are, any Gentile estate... Even the mightiest of empires this world has ever seen, no Gentile nation has the eternal hope or expectation of endless glory that Israel has. The Gentile estate is without hope. And without God in the world. Without God in the world. Now, they, they would claim to have gods. They, they, they uh, would boast about their gods. Uh, the Assyrians boasted about their gods constantly, used their gods to taunt the God of Israel. And then the, the belief was, obviously, if you beat them in war, then your gods were better than their gods. Right? Like, my dad can beat up your dad, obviously. My God is better than your God. And so the Assyrians were convinced, because they, they swept away the northern kingdom of Israel. They took ten tribes into captivity. And, and so they were, they were full of themselves and full of their own arrogance at how awesome are the gods of the Assyrians and how impotent is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that they would then go to Jerusalem and start taunting uh, uh, the king in Jerusalem. They would start taunting Hezekiah in Jerusalem. They say, we're not afraid of Yahweh. Look what we did to your brothers in the north. Failing to realize, of course, that what they did to the brothers in the north was because God allowed it. God directed it. That they had been pagans. They had actually, the Samaritans weren't truly worshiping Yahweh anyway. They had, they had two golden calves and they were worshiping Baal and they had all these other false gods that they were serving. That's why God put them under discipline. It is curious to me, though, all the boasting of the uh, Assyrian gods that all ended when Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Assyrians, <laughs> right? You know, there's always a bigger fish. And there's always, uh, when, when the Babylonians came and overthrew the Assyrians, well, now it's time to brag about the, uh, the Babylonian gods. So we can start uh, bragging about Marduk and Bel and all, and, and all these other Babylonian gods who obviously were stronger than the Assyrian gods because look who won on the battlefield. Anyway, without God in the world... The Greek text uh, of without God in the world, let me go ahead and open that up so you can see it too. And we'll highlight it for you here. Atheoi en to cosmo. Atheoi en to cosmo. The word atheoi. Atheist. Atheoi. They were atheists. Not the way we use atheist today, but still, that's the word. Atheoi. Godless. Godless in this cosmos. Because the gods of the nations are useless idols scheduled to perish. The Gentile estate is godless. It is hopeless and it is godless. You know, all of the hope that the Assyrians had, what could their Assyrian gods do for them? All the hope that the Babylonians had, what did the Babylonians god do for them? Uh, all the hope that the Greeks had, what did the Greek gods do for them? What do the Roman gods do for them? All the gods of the nations are idols. 
They're fallen angels. They're demons. They're pretending to be God, but they are not God. So here's some of my favorite passages here, I think, that address this. Deuteronomy 4, verses 7 and 8. Moses in Deuteronomy is, is recounting these glories. Deuteronomy is the second time the law is given. The Exodus generation has died, and now the, the, the children are stepping up, and they're going to go into the land. And so they have to have the, the law recounted to them. And Moses says, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? What great nation is there? Not the Egyptians. In fact, the whole Egyptian pantheon was mocked in the ten plagues of Egypt. They had a sun god in Egypt. Well, what good was he when the sun was darkened? <laughs> okay? They had a whole bunch of other gods that were all addressed with the gnats and the flies and the blood and the frogs, and, 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 and especially the sun. All of the Egyptian pantheon was just mocked by ten plagues on Egypt, demonstrating their impotency and uselessness. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it? The far and near contrast is one that we'll be looking at in Ephesians 2. Because the Gentiles were far, Israel was near, but not as near as the church. We're going to see the nearness that Israel had is not the nearness of being in Christ. Of being united personally with Jesus Christ and members of the royal family of God. But here, they have a nearness. Clearly, it's a nearness that's nearer than the Gentiles. As the Lord our God, as Yahweh our God, whenever we call on Him. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Gentile nations had laws, of course, but not the righteous and just laws of, of the Mosaic Code. Okay? You know... The expectation that, that God is a God of justice, the expectation that even the king is accountable to a higher God, a higher authority than him. The Gentiles uh, tended to not put that into their laws. <laughs> you know, might makes right, and uh, what, what applies to the people may not necessarily apply to the king. And uh, the little guy, of course, was expected to be under law, while the, uh, the tyrant or the dictator could essentially be above the law and do whatever he wants. What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? So the contrast between the Gentiles and Israel couldn't be more clear. And that's the case of what we see there with the Gentile sphere of humanity and the Jewish sphere of humanity. That's the way it was. And uh, great was the Jewish way and not uh, uh, they were the chosen people and blessed with all these blessings. The Gentiles were not. Uh, Still in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. Don't follow those gods. Don't imitate the Canaanites when you go into that land. Don't worship them. Don't serve them. Some of those Canaanites were worshiping Molech. Molech required child sacrifice. Don't be doing that. Baal worship. The, uh, the Ashtoreth, all the other idolatry that they had, a lot of it was fertility-centered. A lot of it was, was uh, fornication-centered. Don't be doing that. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. The word for peoples there is Gentiles, the nations. Alright? For the Lord your God is in the midst of you, is a jealous God. See, He lives with you. The glory walks with you. The glory dwells with you in the Holy of Holies, in your temple, in your, in your capital, or wherever they set. They did set up the tabernacle in different places at different times. But still, the glory was with them in their midst. And for that glory to dwell in their land and then to go serve Baal or go serve Molech or go serve one of these other gods, Dagon, the, the fish god of the, of the Philistines, the Lord your God is a jealous God. The anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. See, the, the, the Deuteronomy generation, they, they had a chance to learn from their parents. Their parents are the ones that failed. Their parents are the ones that built the golden calf. They did all the things that they did in the wilderness there. So do not follow those gods. They are useless idols scheduled to perish. Second Samuel chapter 7, 
What nation on earth? This is in the giving of the Davidic covenant. If you're not familiar, you should, I mean, you should have these chapter titles down. The through the Bible year just gets us. When you think Second Samuel chapter seven, boom, Davidic covenant. No questions asked. First thing that crosses your mind. What one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for Himself as a people, to make a name for Himself, and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. Israel was unique. Israel was set apart. Israel was chosen from those nations and from those gods. What nation is there? You have established yourself for yourself, your people Israel, as your own people forever. Yahweh Elohim is not the Lord God of America. He's the Lord God of Israel. And only Israel. Psalm 96.5 For all the gods of the peoples are idols. Alright, let's back up a little bit. Anytime you come across a therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. We Actually, this is an anticipation of the kingdom. And, and what a song we're going to sing when, when, uh, when Jesus is reigning. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. And Israel and their stewardship were expected to do this. They largely failed throughout most of Old Testament history. But they should have traveled the globe telling every Gentile nation about the glories of the God of Israel. They will do that in the millennium. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He is to be feared above all gods. Remember, some of the mightiest angels were called Elohim. They were called Beneha Elohim. They were called gods and sons of God. The highest ranking angels had divine... Uh, they weren't God, but they had divine attributes. They had divine power. For Satan, it went to his head. And for others, they didn't do so well with it either. A third of them followed after Satan in his rebellion. Great is the Lord, greatly is to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Man, good things to look forward to. You know, a little sneak peek of the coming kingdom. Sneak peek of Jesus and His millennial glory. Sneak peek of the Gentile nations going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God. But the gods of the peoples are idols. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold. The work of man's hands. You know, a man-made God is not a God. <laughs> right? How can you be impressed with the work of man's hands? Any, any idol can be improved. Right? Any idol can be added to, can be improved. You're looking at an idol. How impressive is it? Well, how much gold went into it? How, how much wealth was spent on it? Couldn't you have done more? Couldn't you have made a bigger God? Couldn't you put more gold into it? And couldn't you have had a better craftsman? All right. It's not, anything man-made is so finite and so limited. The work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. So, you know, cry out to it all you want and plead in prayer to this idol and, and pour out your soul and, and beg and pray and love and devote yourself. He doesn't hear a thing. But you and I can pour our hearts out to the Lord and He hears every word. And He loves us and He provides for us. God bless, okay? They have no ears that cannot hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Exactly. All these idol makers are going to drop dead someday. And these idols, where are they going? Jeremiah 10 and verse 11. Hmm. <laughs> 
Thus you shall say to them, and uh, do I read all of this? All right, Jeremiah chapter 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. And this was true historically. It's going to be true, of course, in the tribulation. They're going to see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. The kings of the earth are going to hide in caves. Uh, the Gentile nations are going to be terrified as Jesus Christ returns to earth to conquer at Armageddon. But don't learn their ways. Don't learn their ways. Don't, learn their, their, don't worship their gods. Don't serve their customs. The customs of the peoples are delusion. Is he talking about America today? <laughs> We have some self-delusionary customs, and it seems uh, everybody that is participating and those who don't participate are called the, the bigots and the haters, and you, you should participate in all these delusions. The customs of the peoples are a delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver, with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Yeah, it's really embarrassing when you make an idol and it keeps falling over. Okay? You want, you want to, you know, at least have a good base, something that it stands on. You don't want it to totter. Tottering idols. This is part of, you know, when the Philistines captured the ark and they took it into their temple. And every morning they woke up and their, their idol had fallen over. And the sovereignty of God kept pushing that Dagon statue over so that um, he was bowing before the ark of the covenant every morning. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. And they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Right? I mean, think about it. I mean, it's worse than a baby. At least a baby grows up and starts learning how to walk and a toddler. And then, you know, eventually you don't have to carry the baby forever. And, but this idol? When's this idol going to grow up? When's this idol going to learn how to walk? Never. You always have to carry it from place to place. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. Now notice what you... I kind of passed over that kind of quickly. O King of the nations. See, yes, he's the God of Israel. That doesn't mean he's abandoning all the Gentile nations. He's going to bless them through Israel. In you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. He is the king of kings. That means all those Gentile kings are going to serve him and he will bless them. He is their king, their overlord, king of the nations. Indeed, it is your due. Who would not fear you? There's going to be a crowd in the millennium that will not worship and they'll have their reign turned off. Part of the judgment for them for not worshiping Jesus Christ. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you, but they are altogether stupid and foolish. And their discipline is of delusion, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. Oh, slow down now. Purple's kind of nice. They are the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Understand that these gods are going to perish. The fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. They have an eternal perishing in the lake of fire all eternity. So why would you worship those gods? Okay? And I mentioned um, Wednesday night, the American pantheon is perhaps the most pathetic of all the pantheons that there's ever been. Right? If you ever study mythology and you learn all of your different things, you learn about like the Greeks, they had Zeus and, and, and Hercules, and you had, all, you had Poseidon, and you had all, all of the Greek pantheons, and then you learn about the German pantheons. My, my racial background is Germanic, so we had Odin and Thor and Freya and all the, the uh, ooh, some of the, the Valkyrie stories were kind of cool. But, but all of those demons, all of those false gods, uh, where are they now? Okay? 
And then you have, and then sort of the Aztecs had a bunch, and then every, every pagan culture, every Gentile culture has had their native gods. But the American gods, what we've turned into today with our idols today, our sports gods, our musicians, our actors, our, you know, Taylor Swift might be the patron saint of whatever, okay? Some of the most pathetic gods in the world. Or how about Donald Trump making an idol out of Trump? What are we doing? The gods, uh, you know, we have, uh, we, we built temples called Hall of Fame, you know, Baseball Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame. We have these temples for our pantheons so that they can be enthroned. Anyway, now we are without God. Gentiles without God in the world until we are baptized in a personal union with Jesus Christ. And now you who were far off have been brought near but now in Christ. And so this is what we'll pick up with Wednesday night. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for truth. I thank you, Father, that we are not the hopeless Gentiles we used to be. I thank you for the body of Christ and the new man, the new creation. And I pray, Father, for a clear understanding of Jew and Gentile, the proper understanding of Jew, Gentile, and church, that we rightly divide the word of truth as you command us to do so. Thank you for the privilege of standing before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed. So, Father, give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.